Welcome to the Diversity and Inclusion On Air podcast. This podcast is a program of the Association of American Veterinary Medical Colleges Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions, as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Lisa Greenhill, and I'm the Senior Director for Institutional Research and Diversity at the AAVMC. So I'm very excited about this episode. It's a uh, part two of our assistance animals um, series. Um, and I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Megan Heron. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly. You are. <laughs> Sorry. Um, she is the clinical associate professor of behavioral medicine at the Ohio State University's College of Veterinary Medicine. On episode 31, I was joined by uh, Scott Listener, the ADA compliance officer at Ohio State, and we talked at length about assistance animals and the legal protections granted to individuals who use them. So today we're going to talk a bit about um, behaviors that we can expect to see with these types of animals. So um, as is our custom, I would invite my guest, Dr. Heron, to uh, tell us a little bit about herself. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks for having me today. Uh, so a little bit about myself. So as you mentioned, I'm a professor, associate professor at the Ohio State University College of Veterinary Medicine. I've been here for about a decade, and um, I am fortunate enough to be able to teach veterinary students as they are learning to become veterinarians, both in their first year, second year, third year, and fourth year. So they really can't escape vet school without me. <laughs> and um, <laughs> trying to impart basic knowledge and skills on animal behavior. Um, my focus is primarily small animal, meaning dogs and cats. And, um, but we also do teach a broad range of behavior in, in other species, mostly domestic species, um, horses, cows, pigs, that sort of thing. Um, but my focus is on small animal behavior. And then, and clinically, so I actually see patients, I see dogs and cats for behavior problems with their owners um, most days of the week in our clinic. Um, so I, I have both aspects of that. And we also allow students to shadow those appointments so they can learn and be able to somehow, sometimes treat those same cases uh, when they graduate. Great. Well, that sounds really cool. So, especially as the uh, doggy parent of a carrier <laughs> with severe separation anxiety. There you go. See a lot of that for sure. <laughs> so, why don't we dive right in? So, how are service animals generally selected and trained? So, we know, um, I think that the last couple of years, shows like the Today Show had kind of a uh, uh, um, assistance or service dog training in uh, dog in residence on the show, um, kind of living there and um, being on camera and being socialized and all of those kinds of things. But kind of what happens before all of that? How do you um, how do folks kind of select for that? And then what is involved in the training to kind of get the behaviors that we're looking for? Mm -hmm. Well, before training even starts, the planning starts before the animal's born. So if you're looking at canine assistance animals specifically, I mean, there are breeding programs where they are very carefully selecting parents um, with very specific, very docile personalities. I mean, docility is really, really needed for these dogs to be able to tolerate 
um, all sorts of different environments to be able to be comfortable um, with an, an assortment of different people of all ages, um, disabilities, abilities, behaviors, right? Some might be more erratic than others and unpredictable, um, but they really need to be, uh, I guess, bomb proof is, is <laughs> the best way say it and that starts with genetics really um you know looking trying their best to look for dogs who are just predisposed to having very docile very tolerant very calm personalities um and intelligence clearly these dogs are very smart and they need to work on the spot and to be able to learn all sorts of different cues um even nonverbal ones right so they can understand and read people very well and know how to interact and what to do next um without necessarily have to be having to be told so uh, then once those pups are selected, they go through a very rigorous socialization program, as you mentioned on today's show. So socialization, for those of you who aren't familiar, is a period of time in a dog's life where the brain is a sponge, where they need to learn that everything in life is safe. That's going to be different types of people um, with different types of behaviors, different environments, different floorings, different lighting, both indoor and outdoor environments. Just think of anything a dog could see smell, hear, or feel, or experience in its life, and you want to try to cram that all in uh, during those early weeks. So again, about three to 12 weeks of age is that time frame. Now, clearly at three weeks of age, they're just barely walking and, and able to see and hear. So typically they're with mom and litter mates because there's a lot to gain from mom and litter mates from inner dog skills because they're, they're going to encounter other dogs later in life. So they want to be socialized well and, and not be fearful or reactive to other dogs that they might see out on a walk. Um, but, but typically they're getting into a home of a puppy raiser who's spending time with them, taking them everywhere with them. When we've had that students here that are training uh, service dogs and they're bringing them to class with them as part of that training. And I see them all over campus. It's really nice to see you know, their service dog. That's these little puppies just kind of training and getting their exposure. So it's an exposure, but it's also training. So they're working on teaching them to walk on a leash, teaching them to walk closely. Um, I mean, the learning starts, you know, the second they enter that puppy raiser's home. And uh, as far as I'm familiar, at least the, the um, facilities that I have visited or worked with before, typically the puppy raising, it takes up to a year, year and a half. And you're not typically seeing a service dog go with, a, with their, their client or their companion um, until they're a year and a half, two years of age. So um, I've been to these graduations before. They're, they're very, they're tear jerkers for sure. You see the puppy raisers, very proud of their doggy, getting paired <laughs> with their person. And it's just a special moment, you know, that these, these patients have been waiting for. And it just opens the world of opportunity for them that they wouldn't have had without this assistance animal. Um, and, and then they're, you know, they try to match them, really. They're looking at the different personalities. And, and clearly, some of those puppies never make it to that phase. You know, it's pretty rigorous. They, they really need to be bomb-proof, tolerant, calm, have that ability to learn and anticipate the needs of their handler. Um, and a lot, it's an extraordinary animal to be able to do that. Uh, really extraordinary. It's really not normal <laughs> to, be to be able to be a, a, a service dog like that. Um, you know, I have people come to me, how do I get my dog to be my service animal or my, my, my assistance animal, you know, being able to not necessarily emotional assistance, but for, you know, physical assistance sure. as well. That, 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 that ship's kind of sailed. I mean, these dogs that you see out there are, are, were, were purpose-bred and hand-reared from day one to have that job. So it's really hard, you know, to start with a dog who's two or three years of age and say, we're going to make you this service dog. Not that it's impossible, but it's very, very difficult um, to really be the, the dogs you see out there. All right. Uh, animals. 
So, so it sounds like you're really um, describing service animals. So, yeah. um, and that's kind of what I limited that first question to. So, mm -hmm. so what about um, emotional support animals? These are animals that um, um, I guess the cues that they take are kind of different than service animals. The mm -hmm. function that they take is a bit different. Um, but we're also seeing a lot of different kinds of animals <laughs> being used as, uh, um, as support animals. So is there a training? What kind of expectations do people have related to behavior for those groups? Right. And so, I, and I would say, I think service animals probably also serves a, a great deal of emotional support to their, their handlers, but their main purpose is, is physical assistance, right? Whether someone has a visual deficit or an ambulatory deficit, these dogs are helping them complete those tasks and to function in, you know, an environment that they may not be able to, whereas an emotional support animal um, it is different. They're not typically the dog that's picking up your keys, turning on a light switch for you, grabbing a water out of the fridge for you. This is more emotional support. And I mean, again, talking about opening the window of opportunity for, for patients and, and people, you know, there's a lot of people who, who really can't face the world without that type of emotional support. And these dogs or other animals are really giving them that ability to cope and to open up opportunities for them that they never would have had without it. So I am very supportive of of that you know being an option that said you don't see the rigor as far as selection these are typically self-selected so i mean it's their it's their their pet it's their animal some of them they may have raised from a puppy some they may have just picked up from a shelter last week so there's really not any rigor into looking at the genetics looking at the overall behavior or or training level it's really it's self-selecting if you can't really tell someone this is your dog. This is a dog that makes you feel better, right? You, you right. self-select that. You, you self-select your emotional support, which is typically a pet that may not have necessarily been chosen for that purpose. Sometimes they discover how helpful it has been for them and they make them an emotional support animal. But again, I'm sure there are people who purposely are looking to find a match for them. And, you know, if, if people recognize that and have that ability, then getting help to choose the right animal for that role would be ideal. But I, my, my, my guess, and again, this is just an assumption, is that that's typically not the case. It's typically self-selecting a pet that they already have. And there's a discovery of what sort of emotional support that pet gives them and, and the ability and opportunity opens up for them. And um, we now have this kind of ability, this, this window that allows people to then bring those animals with them into places that don't typically allow pets. Um, and so I, there isn't right now any sort of official training, official certification. It's, it's based on the human, the person um, mm -hmm. having a diagnosis that part of that treatment is having an emotional assistance animal with them. And so as long as that is signed off by an appropriate psychological authority, then they are able to bring that animal with them. Um, now it's going to be dependent on airlines, dependent on, you know, different places where they're taking them, what they allow, and also what sort of health guarantee, whether there's a health certificate required. I mean, technically speaking, crossing state lines, you should have a signed health certificate by a veterinarian. But I, it, again, that's going to be up to the airlines. That's going to be up to the establishments that are that are taking these animals. Sure, sure. So, so you don't see, you're, to answer your question, there is not a training program. There is not the rigor that you would see right. with the service animal. It's typically right. self-selected. Right. And so, you know, how, um, as a, as as someone who studies and, and works in animal behavior, um, recognizing that, you know, they serve many, 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 many different, um, you know, uh, emotional support roles for individuals. Um, what are some of the things that you might 
um, suggest to clients very broadly, um, you know, that they look for. I mean, when Scott and I um, chatted um, on episode 31, it was um, actually the week of the Peacock scandal. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, and, 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 and I laugh, um, but apparently, you know, this, this person have had this bird um, and the bird served some emotional function for her. Um, and I recognize for, I'm not a veterinarian, I recognize for a lot of lay folks or folks that are not working in that particular space that that seemed um, a bit of a stretch for some of us. I've seen only seen peacocks in zoos and they don't seem to be very caring for sure. fuzzy animals <laughs> but that was my limited exposure uh -huh. so right. what kinds of things um you know for this this particular um i mean knowing that on the service animal side that the that there's so much investment on the front end front end being mm -hmm. prior to prior to conception um so for folks that are looking to either you know, identify their their existing animal as potential service trainable, um, or they're looking for this particular type of support, emotional support. What are some of the things that you might suggest to clients very broadly um, that you know they look for? Sure. And I, I think the unfortunate thing is 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 that's not necessarily a concept that's emphasized. You know, it's it's a conversation between you know their psychological healthcare provider and the patient and making decision that this this animal provides me that emotional support, but there's not a lot of attention given. Is this the right animal? Is this animal fit for that type of job? And I think a lot of that's going to vary on what what sort of emotional support is this animal providing and where? I mean, are we just talking about being able to go out to dinner? Are we talking about going on an airplane? Are we talking about going to a movie theater? Uh, are we walking through heavy traffic? Uh, are we going in the car, right? So, uh, and I think that the issue is that you your average dog maybe not best equipped to cope with abrupt changes, unpredictable interactions, loud noises. So I see a lot of dogs with noise fears and noise phobias who might startle. Um, you also wanna think about, you know, if there are other animals also present, there are other service animals or even walking, you know, uh, down the hall, if they are fearful of other people, of other animals, they could then potentially be reactive or aggressive. Um, and so I tell people to really think about what, what the job they need, where do they want to be able to take this animal, and think about what the animal's going to experience. What are they going to see? What are they going to hear? What are they going to smell? Who's going to touch them? If so, when and where? Um, and and what's, that gonna, what ex, what's that experience going to be like? And let's walk through this animal's previous history and think, how does that animal cope well? And I think trying to create some empathy between patients and animals, as you think about it, they're looking for emotional support. Do they really want to put their animal who is, you know, really the center of their lives in a situation that causes them emotional distress? And so I think a lot of people forget to think of it from that aspect. And I think that's important um, that some of these dogs don't cope well being on an airplane, don't cope well being around a lot of strangers. Um, and particularly if they are a small dog that's not really gone anywhere as a puppy and is used to sitting on someone's lap may not be comfortable sitting on an airplane next to another stranger or walking around an environment where they could bolt, they could, they could panic, they could get scared and run away and then be lost. I mean, there's that, that's something that a service dog is trained and screened to never happen. And even in the best of service dogs, sometimes those things happen. Sure. So you take an emotional support animal, you know, he may not have that, that rigor, that, that 
docility or ability to really cope in this situation. So I really try to have people empathize with their own pets and think about what are they going to experience and is this the right pet for that? Because it doesn't mean they have to get rid of that pet. It just may mean they need to think about selecting another animal who can cohabitate with that current pet to also be their support animal, taking them away from the home. And that's hard. And that's often not, it's often not practical. They may not be able to, or there is one particular pet that is really their true provider of emotional support. And so we have to think about making wise choices for them. Um, I think, you know, what I really like about the service dog is that there's always kind of clear um, signage and vests saying service animal and people respect that. You don't see people going up trying to pet a service animal, putting their face in a service animal's face or interfering at all. You don't even have to pet those animals. They're working. And I worry that with an emotional support animal, you don't see that signage. There's no regulation on a vest or a collar or anything that says this is a service animal or support animal. Because I really feel like the general public should respect those same boundaries as they would a service animal. Um, Because we really don't. We don't know this animal is going to tolerate a stranger trying to pet it or kids coming up and trying to hug the dog. And that person, that patient may not know it. They may generally not be aware if their dog is okay with that. I mean, it takes a while. We don't speak dog. You have to learn how to read body language and interpret their behavior. And so your average person may not recognize when a dog is fearful or scared or not wanting to be touched. But if we just all were able to respect those boundaries like we did a service animal, I think that would help a lot for these dogs um, and, and their and their owners. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So so what are some of those? I mean, you've kind of alluded to some of the challenges um, um, behaviorally that, that may occur. But what are some of those those challenges that you've seen maybe with assistance animals of various kinds and um, and, and included in that, not just the behavior, but, you know, I guess the, the signage is is an important part. And I think that a lot of times um, the lay public may be able to clearly delineate kind of the, the a service animal from an emotional support animal, just because I think that culturally we are um, attuned to the fact that, well, one, they typically be a certain, certain, certain breeds, right? right. Um, and we see them so calm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with the proliferation of, of um, the ability, I guess, to get these vests, these um, things, you can just go on Amazon, <laughs> get a vest and, and pop it on. Um, what are some of the challenges with, um, um, with these things that maybe you've seen out in the field? Mm-hmm. Well, and to be honest, sometimes they're helpful for our, some of our patients who really don't want strangers petting them. And our, I will admit some of our owners, based on our advice, will use those vests to keep people at a distance because it works. One of the few things that actually keeps people at a distance. So I actually don't have a problem with the proliferation creation of it, um, if it if it actually keeps people away, unless it sort of dilutes that and then causes people to not really, you know, think, oh, it's not real, I'm a real service dog, so it's okay for me to invade mm-hmm. space or pet it. Um, and, and I think, you know, a lot of these, these, these pets, it's, as you say, they're not the typical Labrador, they're not the typical golden retriever and standard breed. And a lot of them are smaller. I mean, that's at least been my experience. A lot of them are small dogs, Mm -hmm. cute dogs. So children are drawn to them. Other people are drawn to them and they assume small dogs like puppies, small dog must be friendly. Small dog wants me to touch it. (laughs) So so that signage is helpful. Um, But I, I do think some sort of regulation and even if it's online coursework or some sort of training to help people 
who are going to take their animal as an emotional support animal, you know, how, how do you read their body language? How do you know what's a good environment for that dog to be in? How do you know if that dog is safe? I mean, some dogs will bite people if they get too close to them. And then you have, and then you have a public safety risk there and, and who's responsible and who's, who's going to be liable for that. And I think that's what puts some of these airlines in a really tough position, right? Because there isn't a way to guarantee that. And I know they've been working with, you know, trying to have physician statements ahead of ever veterinarians, but there's, there's not really a good way for a veterinarian to do a five minute exam and say, I can guarantee you this dog's not going to bite someone. You could never give that guarantee with any dog. So I really think it's about personal education of what is behavior, what does body language look like? Here are the signs of distress, not just from a public safety standpoint, but also from an empathy standpoint of mm-hmm. this is emotional support animal. You should want your animal to also be in emotionally good health as well and have them in experiences where they're not under distress, which is for their own welfare. And I just think a lot of people just aren't aware. It's not about intentionally being cruel or mean or putting their animal in situations that is not good for their welfare. It's just a matter of lack of knowledge. It's just not out there. Um, and so trying to develop strategies to, to give that sort of education to these people of, of, of A, determining if they, their pet really is um, appropriate for this and, and A, is it safe and B, going to be okay for their welfare to serve that purpose. Um, and if so, and maybe there's there are unique things that we can help. Maybe we can help you know, these animals learn to cope with certain sounds that bother them or certain learn strategies um, that they can take cues off of their, their owner um, to cope better and to not be afraid and to have, say, treats with them to provide to an animal if they're on a bus where they're a little bit frightened and work through some of those fears rather than just saying, you know, just sit here and deal with it. Um, and, and a lot of people don't, they don't have those tools. They don't, they don't know um, without meeting with a professional, really, what, what's the way to do that. And so having resources to help them, I think is great. Or some sort of, you know, starter kit, I guess, which I, I'm not really aware of anything other than this animal provides me support. I find a psychological healthcare provider who can sign off that this is okay. And then they're just left with little to no guidance, which is unfortunate. So hopefully that's, that's on the verge of changing. Yeah, well, I was just about to say, it sounds like there's a place in the profession <laughs> to kind of bridge, bridge this gap, um, that there's um, not just a place, but there's really a, a need mm-hmm. for the kind of mental health professional or um, and the mental health professional and the, the veterinarian to really be on the same team to kind of help individuals um, who have identified a need for an assistance animal of some type to really um, be educated and informed about, you know, that need for the animal, what kind of animal, that behaviors to look for, all of those kinds of things. And it doesn't sound like either um, professional group independently is able to kind of, like it really does, there's a real opportunity there to help individuals um, develop some some skills to to help themselves to Mm -hmm. actually to regain some control over their lives agreed agreed so one of the reasons that we're talking about this is because we are seeing a lot an increase in the number of assistance animals and specifically emotional support animals um, within the veterinary colleges Um, and this is something that I think a lot of schools are trying to figure out how to navigate um, in a way that not only is um, supportive and legal and all of those kinds of things, but also 
um, is able to offer the necessary protections for everyone else, um, animals and humans in those spaces. And so um, when students emerge into the clinical component of the, um, the learning experience, then they're tend to be some unique challenges about bringing another set of animals around. So I'm, I'm curious uh, what your advice or what your thoughts are on what colleges should consider around animal behavior in working with ADA compliance offices, um, you know, for um, approval of, of animals in those settings. Sure. And I think some of that's going to depend on on what level of approval can, can they have, you know, you know, if you look on if you another aspect of, of, of assistance animal we haven't talked about our therapy dogs. Oh, right. Sure. These are dogs that are they actually do have to go through a certification and typically an owner taking their pet to be a therapy dog for others. Hmm. So it may be and typically it's, a, it's an emotional support. It's it's helpful for them. It calms their stress. It's just a nice break for them to have that emotional connection with an animal. Um, and there to be there's there is regulation over that. So there are Delta Society and there's other service dog, you know, where, where they actually have to demonstrate a certain level of obedience training and an ability to be calm and non-reactive in many situations. And even then, I see a lot of therapy dogs that are not necessarily comfortable with that job. Um, so there's definitely room for improvement there. So per perhaps, and again, it just depends what, what's really legal. Can there be some sort of certification process that there's a minimum standard in order to be safe around a large group of students so that, you know, because who, who's liable for that? If that dog bites another student, who, who's, who's responsible for that? Probably the university, unfortunately. So, so is there a way, can they have some, again, not super strict or harsh, just a, a little bit of kind of check a few boxes to make sure your dog is safe to be in this situation. And just like we have with the therapy dogs, having some professional behavior professional being able to kind of assess, again, not ever giving a guarantee, but to say at least they've checked the boxes to feel like this animal is not demonstrating that they are a high threat to others. And then potentially there's there's seating, just like we have for other, you know, special needs students, there's there's certain seating areas. So here's an area that gives you and your dog space. So your what maybe it's not a dog, maybe it's a peacock or something <laughs> else, but gives you that space from others and that there are boundaries that are respected. So there are clear rules about some emotional support animal. It's not not an animal we're petting, it's not one we're passing around, um, there's a special seating area. Not to ostracize that person, but just to allow that animal to have space. Have space. Um, it seems to me it would be helpful. Um, and and then the other thing is is you have to think about safety, but also hygiene, you know, house training, right? You, you hear that story of a dog running down the aisle and pooping right in the middle right. of the plane, right? <laughs> right. Um, so that's A, disturbing to people, and B, you know, if, if, they aren't under proper parasite control, there's a public health risk there for, for zoonotic disease as well. So you want to think about that. And, you know, my thought is that there's some sort of health certificate for these dogs that they carry around, not just that this is an emotional support dog, but also this is a healthy dog. So it's been checked for gastrointestinal parasites, has been fully vaccinated, you know, is, is basically checked over for any potential for, for zoonotic disease transmission. And that's going to include Flea and tick prevention, right? Because we don't need to bring a dog and, and, and spread fleas around, you know, the classroom. So I, I think there's probably some health parameters we need to look at as well. All right. Wow, that's uh, that's a lot, um, but really important. Yeah. So, so um, one of the things I think that you mentioned uh, earlier was about uh, veterinarians and their kind of treatment of uh, assistance animals. And certainly in, in your 
um, job. You see a lot of animals. I don't know how many service animals um, you come across uh, in your position at Ohio State. Um, but what should veterinarians um, who are just kind of uh, out in the field with their uh, companion animal practices, maybe not having the, the depth of knowledge around behavior, such as yourself, who spends all of her time working on that. What are some of the things that, that those folks should know around um, treating assistance animals and also providing um, support for their clients with uh, various kinds of assistance animals? Absolutely. Um, and I, I think the way, you know, they treat their general health would be like they would any, any other patient. Um, I, I think educating their client, whether that's through in-person education, through um, handouts, through books, through other literature. I mean, learning to read and interpret body language is one of the biggest ones. Recognizing signs of distress, just having an open conversation about all right, what, what are your plans for this animal? What environments do you want to have this animal in? What sort of exposure do you anticipate? And let's talk about how is, how is your dog reacted in those situations previously? And just sort of maybe a questionnaire could be developed over, you know, here, here are sort of the boxes of high likely stimuli to cause fear or to cause worry or reaction and kind of looking for red flags. And if there are any of those boxes are checked, then we need to talk about that and think, why well, are we going to have this dog in an environment, say loud trucks is a trigger for this dog to become scared and potentially panic and run away. Okay. Well, where are we going to go? Are we going to go in a situation where there's going to be a loud truck or anything loud? Yes. Well, let's talk about that. And, and then helping them find resources. If they themselves don't feel they have the behavioral expertise to give them a plan to work through that, getting them connected with a professional who can help them work through that. Because just because that fear is there, doesn't mean they can't function. It just means we've got some hurdles to get over for them to be successful. And then that professional can help decide when they're ready and have overcome that particular fear. Some of which if they're mild can probably be overcome and others that are severe may not be. And we may have to have that difficult decision with that owner of whether this dog can, can actually play that role for them. Um, but, you know, talking to them, educating them about zoonotic diseases and how important it is to have them under appropriate flea control, uh, monthly deworming, um, so that that's not an issue. And, um, and, and then really, you know, talking to them about, I think, talking to them about signage, I think signage is really important to, so that people respect those boundaries. And again, they may not know that it's available to them. It's not like they're handed a kit of here's your emotional support animal. Here's all the things you need to know. Here's the signage you need to use. So if veterinarians can help provide that as a resource, I think that would be very helpful. That's great recommendation. So uh, anything else that you would want uh, folks in the profession um, or especially pre-veterinary students? We have a lot of uh, pre-vet students who are interested um, in these issues, um, both kind of personally from the service animal um, or assistance animal perspective, but also kind of long-term thinking about careers in the profession and maybe behavior is, is one of those things. Uh, any wise counsel <laughs> for those folks? Sure. I mean, I think I think it's great. I, like I said, we have undergraduate students here who you can see them as puppy raisers, and I think that's fantastic that they want to be involved. It's such a great cause, and it's really, really helpful, and I think very rewarding for them. Um, I think there's also, you know, there's a lot of stigma, I think, when you talk about emotional support animal. There's a stigma against that person of, oh, why do you need to take your dog everywhere? It just It's the sad thing about mental health and, and the public perception of that. And so they're trying to look at that with empathy. 
um, rather than judgment is one of my first pieces of advice. And then and, and I, the, I guess one of the sad things and probably a factor in that is that probably this label of ESA is, is getting a bit abused. So there are people who will find a way to get that signed letter that may not actually qualify or not need it. It's a way to be able to sneak your pet into places. And my hope is that that is the exception to the rule, um, because I would hate to see that spoil it for the people who really do have wonders of opportunity open for them by having that assistance animal. Um, so just having an open mind, having understanding and empathy and respecting boundaries for those pets um, would probably be my top advice. That is great. Thank you so much, Megan, for yeah. spending a little time with us. My pleasure. Uh, AVMC appreciates your time and uh, we are really just so glad to be able to continue this discussion. Um, I think it's an important one in the Absolutely. profession very broadly, um, but one that really, as you as you said a couple of times, it really opens a world um, for individuals who are um, in need of additional um, emo emotional and or physical support uh, mm -hmm. with these various kinds of animals. So um, thank you for the work that you do. You're welcome. We really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Take care. Great. Thank you. And so with that, we will wrap another episode of Diversity and Inclusion on Air. Be sure to check out, check out the show on YouTube for our back episodes, as well as SoundCloud, iTunes, uh, Stitcher, and any of the other podcast apps. You can also find more information about the show, as well as other um, issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession on the show's Facebook page, which you can find at AAVMC Diversity and Inclusion on Air on Facebook. With that, we'll, we'll end this show. Thank you again, Dr. Heron. We really appreciate your taking some time to spend uh, talk, chat, chatting about this. Thanks. Thank you.